This morning's scripture is Matthew 4, verses 18 through 22. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. On deck, it it really is an interesting image. If you're a baseball fan, you understand it especially. But even if you're not, you know what it means, right? It means you've been called. It means that at some point, if you happen to be a major league baseball player, you've been called up from the minor leagues, and eventually the manager of the team is going to call you up to bat. you got a job to do. It's time to take action. It's time to address the pitch. When I think about calls, I don't just think of baseball. I think of a lot of things. And I wonder if you remember an epic call in your life. Maybe it was a phone call. A phone call you got that gave you that job you interviewed for. Maybe it was a call that came by way of the mail. It was an invitation to be a student at the college you had applied for. Or maybe it was just a call for a promotion. It's time to step up to the next level because we think you're worth it. And most of the time, in those situations, there's two things that is often true. One, you might just be surprised, right? You were hoping for it, but you didn't really expect it. And no doubt, when you got the call, you're excited because it's your turn. So about probably four months ago or some, sometime like that, I was, I was doing some reading And um, honestly, I don't even recall the book. I just recall the moment. The author of the book said, I think it's interesting that when I look at the Gospel of Mark, almost every episode in which Jesus encounters another person or another person encounters Jesus, whether it's a miracle, a healing, or anything else, It seems like at the end of the episode, uniformly, there's a call to action. So I began to look at the whole of the New Testament and discovered, of course, it wasn't just Mark. The book that we often call the action gospel, it wasn't just Mark. It seemed to be throughout the New Testament. Jesus encounters someone and inevitably He calls them. 
He basically says, to use our lingo, you're on deck. It's time for a decision. So with that in mind, we decided to do a series throughout this summer that utilized that theme. And you may notice that the titles of the sermon this summer will be perhaps a little different. Not particularly creative and certainly not lengthy. There'll just be one word, primarily an action verb. Today, the word is follow. Next week, the word will be live. The third week, the word is love. The fourth week, the word is pray. The fifth week, the word is trust. The sixth week, the word is give. Week seven, the word is seek. Week eight, the word is share. Week nine, the word is rest. Rest. Week 10, the word is believe. Week 11, I'm looking forward to week 11. Well, be the end of the series, but I like the word, rise. So that's where we're going for the summer. And today we use just one word, follow. Whenever... Um, Jesus called the disciples on this occasion that you read about. It was at the Sea of Galilee. Can we show the first picture of the Sea of Galilee up here on the screen? Or do I have to do that? There it is. Isn't that a beautiful lake? It's also called the sea or the lake of Gennesaret. I, you can see how beautiful it is and how blue it is because of the sky above, but what you see there in that picture are two things that are really important. One is a mountain range, and by the way, that goes all the way around. And then you see in the forefront green, lush vegetation. The Sea of Galilee was a remarkable place. It was actually 680 feet below sea level. And at the Sea of Galilee, people fished. It was the center of the fishing industry in Israel. It was kind of like the hub for fishing. And people would fish day and night in the Sea of Galilee. The next picture shows you um, what it might have looked like on any given day. Now, if you can just kind of edit out those little outboard motors on the back of that boat. That's kind of the way it looked when Jesus climbed into a boat on the Sea of Galilee on numerous occasions, and they rowed. You can also see the faint outline of the mountains in the distance. 
not only was it full of fish, not only was it a place to do business, not only was it a place of beauty, but because of its geographical location, it was a place of remarkable volatility in terms of weather. Remember the description of Jesus on the boat with the disciples and Jesus is asleep in the boat and a horrible storm comes up? Or the other time when a horrible storm comes up and Jesus is walking across the waves? There's a reason for that. In the next picture, you can see what it is. That's a real life picture of the Sea of Galilee. And it's coming right down from those mountains into the cool air and it, it appears to be tornadic. That was the Sea of Galilee. That's where Jesus called these disciples. And they were doing what most people did in that place, especially if it was their business, they were fishing. By the way, uh, sometimes we look at the disciples and see them as people who were undereducated, and they were, but not stupid. We see people who were poor, and maybe they weren't the upper echelon, but not necessarily poor. As a matter of fact, the fishing industry on the Sea of Galilee was lucrative. Archaeologists have discovered on more than one occasion a boat that sank to the bottom of the sea that dates back to the period of the first century. And some of those boats were quite large, including kitchens on the inside, because they would be out all night on the sea. These men that Jesus called were working hard, and they were making money. They had a livelihood. They know where they are, they know where they're going, and their life is very predictable. They're professional fishermen. And as they're fishing and doing what they know to do best at the place that's the best to do it, the Sea of Galilee, they get this call from Jesus. Of course, they're mending their nets. We often think of fishing in a, as a hook and a line, but that's pretty inefficient if you're going to be a commercial fisherman. There were two basic ways, besides a hook and a line, to catch the fish. And, and one of them was a throw net. It had weights on the outside of it, and you would throw it out onto the sea because you saw a school of fish moving around, and it would drop immediately and swallow up those fish. That's probably what Peter was doing when Jesus encountered him. It talked about casting the nets. But there was another way to catch fish. It was what was called a drag net. As a matter of fact, it's used in one of the parables of Jesus. You had a gigantic net, and you had it behind the boat, and the boat was rowed by the fishermen, and the fish just fell into the net. And once the nets were too heavy to sustain the fish, you pulled it out, put it in the boat, and that was your catch. They knew how to fish. They knew what they were doing, and Jesus called them. What about the call? You know what's interesting about this call is that it's kind of counterintuitive for first century cultural people who knew rabbis. You see, Jesus is walking along the shore, and he calls them from doing their work and says, come, come to me, follow me. That was not routinely the case. If you wanted to study with a rabbi, you would go to the rabbi and request to be 
his student. Not unlike a graduate student decides where he or she would like to go to school. Did you know graduate students decide where they want to go to school? Not exclusively, but perhaps primarily based on a particular rabbi in the field. There's actually people who come to graduate school at Indiana University because of one fellow. They want to study with him. They make application. The committee goes through all these lists of people and decides who they are going to call after they have been pursued by the student. So in years past, rabbis would do their teaching, not do any marketing, not make themselves famous by calling people to follow. They would teach. And a student would say, I'd love to follow him. And the student would go to the rabbi and say, please, sir, may I follow you? Isn't it interesting how Jesus does it differently? Oh, by the way, my suspicion is that none of these disciples would have done it the other way. They would not have felt qualified to even apply to be a student of a rabbi. And maybe that's why Jesus reached out to them. They were fishermen. It's also likely, uh, sometimes we don't think of it this way, but it's also likely that these disciples already knew Jesus. Maybe not real well, but they certainly knew him. We have indications in other parts of the Gospels that they'd heard him teach. He was out there. They knew who he was. So it's not likely that this was the first time they'd ever seen the man or heard the pronouncement call of a call, come to me. It's like they knew him. When he called, they left. They had to be excited. They had to be a bit surprised. But they left their nets immediately. That's something else about the call, isn't it? Seems like once called, they had to go. Once they heard the word, they knew they had no choice. I got to follow. Now, you might look at that and say, well, look, they just walked off and left their father in a lurch. As a matter of fact, they were kind of irresponsible. They just threw everything away, their livelihood, and walked and followed Jesus. And sometimes, quite frankly, this passage has been used by Christians who really are irresponsible. They say, I heard the call of God, and I really don't care about my family anymore or anybody else or what anybody else says. I heard a call of God, and I'm going to go do it. And their plan is just irresponsible. We have no indication in the Scripture that there was a dispute among the father and the sons concerning whether or not they ought to go and follow Jesus. As a matter of fact, I think it's likely that the fathers understood this is one you can't pass up. And you get this kind of call, you got to go. And they followed immediately, and their lives changed forever. If you're thinking what I'm thinking, or what I thought when I was thinking about this passage, you may be saying to yourself, Jesus said to them, come, I'm going to make you fishers of men. That's kind of a dark image. 
I'm going to help you catch people in a net, unsuspecting. I'm going to help you know what it means to put a drag net behind you as you walk and people will just fall into it and you'll yank them into your boat. See all the images, right? I'm looking at the image thinking, not such a positive one. Well, if you're thinking that, you're thinking the way the Old Testament prophets thought, quite frankly. And the Old Testament prophets, whether it's Habakkuk or Zechariah or Ezekiel, you'll find references that are always negative to fishermen. There's one occasion where God is speaking concerning the coming judgment of Egypt. And he says to the people in Egypt, I'm going to put a hook in your jaw. And I'm going to yank you right out of the water. And there's going to be fish hanging onto you as you come out. And then I'm going to throw you into the desert and you're going to bleach dead. Why would Jesus pick up the image of a fisherman and say, I want you to fish for men. Let's remind ourselves of something, okay? This is a little bit of an aside, but I think it's an important aside. Every image or metaphor has a purpose, and not every part of that image is appropriate to the purpose. Because there's no perfect metaphor. That's the first thing to remember. So don't beat up a metaphor because you see negative in it. There's always positive. Second thing, metaphors are used routinely to capture the imagination of a person who understands the image. What better image to capture the imagination of fishermen than catching fish? Jesus is not trying to use an image that's so provocative and mean-spirited that it drives people away. He's just saying, you know what? I see you. You fish all day long. You'll understand what I'm saying. I want you to catch people instead of fish. It's interesting how some people have looked at this. I uh, saw a commentator this week who, who described what fishing was like, William Barclay, I, I love William Barclay. Routinely disagree with him, but I love the guy. And um, he says this, he says, there's some interesting parallels between fishing for fish and fishing for people. Here's some of them. He says, fishing requires patience. A long time without a catch. You can be at it a long time. Hours, days, maybe more. Jesus calls you to be fishers of men. It's going to take patience. Second thing he says, it requires, requires perseverance. Why? Because you really have limited success. One of the things I... Can I kind of do this? One of the things I love about baseball is that in any other sport, if you only hit 25% of anything, you wouldn't be playing the game. Right? 
If you ever got to the point that you were hitting 50% as a baseball player, they would elevate you to the level of a god because nobody can do it. So if you're fishing for people, like Jesus calls you to, remember that statistic, will you? You won't get them all. And it's going to take perseverance. And you might bat 150 or less, but you keep doing it. The third thing Barclay says about fishing is it requires courage. And he refers to the passage that I already referred to when the disciples are out on the boat and the image that was up there on the screen of this huge gale force wind that's sweeping in on the lake of Galilee. If you're going to fish out there in a boat, you've got to be courageous. You've got to be ready for the storms because they're coming. There are some people you know who believe that following Jesus means that everything will get better. There are some people who preach a prosperity gospel. There are some people who actually believe that if you're having problems, it's because you don't have enough faith. There are people, let's be honest, ourselves included, that when times are rough, we think somehow it's got to be the punishment of God. Not true. God does chastise us, but even when he does, it's for a purpose. To put it in the words of the writer of the book of Hebrews, the sons that are loved by their father are disciplined by their father. If you're not disciplined, you're not loved. The ones who Jesus calls, he knows full well you're going to walk into the storm that's going to rock your boat. Why? Because you walked into the storm with Jesus. Why? Because you were called. A calling requires courage because there's going to be volatile gale force winds in your life. Because you're following Jesus. It's just going to happen. Count on it. There's no disclaimer box that says, check, I accept here. You found out about it later, didn't you? Barclay also says fishing requires an eye for the right moment. You got to be at the right place, at the right time, and not every place is the right place, and not every time is the right time. I, I wish that, I wish this message could get through to a bunch of people whose hearts are in the right place, who are passionate about Jesus, <coughs> and who want other people to follow Jesus. Because sometimes your passion for Jesus can overwhelm your good sense. And you could be so eager to catch the fish 
that your timing is all off and you're not even in the right place. Did you ever see a fisherman that was rushed in a great big hurry? Not the image I think of. Think of a fisherman that waits. So when you follow Jesus and he calls you to fish for men, you got to wait for the right moment. Might not be now or yesterday or tomorrow, but it will be. The fifth thing Barclay says concerning parallels to fishing is it requires staying out of sight. Isn't that interesting? Requires staying out of sight. The fish see you, the fish hear you, you're done. You say, how can I do the work of fishing for men if I have to stay out of sight? The way to stay out of sight, speaking of metaphors and images, you know how to stay out of sight? You see that cross right there? The way you stay out of sight is you put yourself on the cross behind it. And you let the cross of Christ be the visible thing. All you're doing is carrying the cross. It's another thing I wish we could learn. That we don't have to be verbose and loudmouth and shout. We just stay invisible and follow Jesus. So you know there's a cost associated with a call. When Jesus says follow, there's a cost. What's the cost? What's it look like? Well, first you've got to leave. Even if it's not an unresponsible leaving, it's a leaving. You've got to leave what's familiar. When Jesus calls, you've got to say, okay, I'll leave that behind and follow you. It means sacrifice. It means giving up some things. It actually means walking into storms. And it might mean that it will cost you your life. Do you think when the disciples signed up, when they heard the call of Jesus, they thought that every one of them besides John was going to die a martyr's death? I doubt it might have affected whether or not they immediately dropped their nets and followed Jesus. It requires sacrifice. It requires that you leave. It requires that you enter into a very unexpected up and down life. And if you don't believe that, just look at the ministry of Jesus. You ever looked at the ministry of Jesus? There were some pinnacles in it where people were calling for him to be king. There were places where thousands of people were following him. And then there were places when there was nobody around. When, if I can make this personal, when his ministry tanked. When nobody showed up and it seemed like nobody was listening. And you know what? If Jesus had been doing that in the 21st century, some marketing guy would have come along and said, we can fix this. 
I'm not against marketing. I'm no good at it, but I'm not really against it. The point of following Jesus is not to make ourselves attractive or to come up with a new slogan or to communicate our uniqueness as best we can. The point of following Jesus is to follow Jesus. You know what the point of coming to church is? Not to make you feel better about yourself. Not to make sure you're well connected, although I hope you are. Not to be entertained by me. We know that doesn't happen. Not to like or dislike the music. We know your opinions on that. The point of coming to church is being in a community of people who challenge each other about best ways to follow Jesus. And you know what that means? It means the church is a moving target. It means that you can't decide with a strategic plan exactly how to follow Jesus. You are, after all, following Jesus. That's the strategic plan. There's all kinds of turns in the roads and valleys and dark places and great highs. You follow Jesus. You want to feel connected at this church or any other church? Figure out a way to best follow Jesus. And then join arms with someone else who's following Jesus. And it's going to mean a different thing every day. Here's the other thing about the cost. It's continuous. The cost of following Jesus. It never stops. Never. There's always a new challenge. Because that's what Jesus does. Here's the point, my friends. Jesus is calling you. Every one of you. He's calling you to follow him. What does that mean? It means that you're always going to be on a growth curve. Always. Can I, can I speak just for a moment to those who have been following Jesus for 40 plus years? You know who you are. You're in a danger zone, just like me. You know what the danger zone is? Potentially, you're not challenged anymore. It's possible you feel like you've done your part. What's even worse is maybe you think you've got it figured out. And you know the routine. You don't. Jesus never lets you get settled into a routine that makes you feel comfortable because if you do, you're not following. 
You can't ever get to the place that you say, it's this way and no other way. A couple of weeks ago, we had Youth Sunday. You know what the youth of the church and the younger generation do to the rest of us? They challenge us to follow Jesus in a new way. If they're Christ followers. They got new ideas. They got new methods. Sure, maybe we have more wisdom. But sometimes our wisdom is just intransigence. We don't want to do anything different. And if we're not listening and watching the emerging generation, we're not following Jesus. Here's the uh, second major thing that it means. It not only means continuous and change. It means this. This is so basic. But it sounds like the most harsh statement. You can't be a Christian unless you actively follow Jesus. I don't want to diminish it, but anybody can believe. That's why in the book of James, he says to those who believe, good, you believe, congratulations. Let me tell you who else believes. The devils do. Because they know reality. What the devils don't do is follow. Just believing is not enough, friends. Just believing is not being a Christian. As much as our Reformation tradition sometimes seems to say that, it doesn't even say that. Being a Christian is following Jesus. Being a Christian doesn't mean just getting your theology right. You know, you can get your theology right and not even be a Christian. You know, you can study God professionally for all your life and not have a heart to follow Jesus. Being a Christian means following Jesus. It means looking at the scriptures every day, being in community every day, and asking the question, Lord, what do you want of me now? And it changes. It changes, my friend. Being a Christian is not just keeping your moral habits in line, either. And condemning sin. The things I've mentioned, all of them, you can do every single one of them without following. Jesus says, follow me. Third thing I want to emphasize about what it means to follow Jesus is sometimes it's just going to shock you to death. 
I mean, did he even ask you to follow him? You're going to be like, what? I don't, I don't have the goods for that. Me? I'm just a fisherman. What, why'd you call me, Jesus? I can think of a bunch of other people who are better equipped for this call. To use a phrase that's been around forever and kind of worn out, can be manipulated. Jesus doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. Jesus doesn't call those who've got it all together. He calls people, and then he helps them to equip them to follow. Again, you could take that to an extreme, but I think you get my point. Don't be surprised when he calls. I was. Honestly, I am every day. I'm not bragging. I'm telling you I got a problem. We all have this problem to a certain extent. Some of us who are completely arrogant might not. But every time I'm called to be a pastor, to be an example, to step up here and proclaim, I can hardly remember occasion where I don't say somewhere deep down in my soul, why me? I can think of a better candidate. Don't be surprised when Jesus calls. Here's the final word of admonition. It's short, I promise. Jesus is calling. And because he's calling, because Jesus is calling, you are up to it. So step up to the plate. You're on deck. Jesus is calling. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the call. It defines our lives. It helps us to understand who we are. We thought we knew before we were called. But you reshape our lives through the calling. So we pray that as you continue to reshape it, as you continue to call us to new things, to learn new things, to do new things, you'll give us the patience it takes to do it, the perseverance, the courage, and you'll give us wisdom for the right moment. And we pray as we individuals make that decision that the church will be blessed by following you and that your kingdom will come and your will will be done on earth 
just like it is in heaven. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.